0: edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown, on the application of Ban Number No. 3, and the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. The citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 3. For those of you who have listened to the podcast from the very beginning, you may remember when we looked at Ban Number No. 2 before the Supreme Court. That was actually quite a long episode because it looks at the history of the Chagos Islands, which this case is indirectly about, and considers the injustice that has been done to the Chagossians at the hands of the British government, who still act to this day like typical imperialists when it comes to these tiny islands. If you do want to find out more about this, then I would recommend that you check out that episode. Or there is a brilliant documentary on YouTube by John Pilger called Stealing a Nation. For the purposes of this podcast episode, though, you only need to know that the Chagos Islands are a British Indian Ocean territory, but that in the early 1970s, the actual Chagossians were removed from the islands and not allowed to return because the British government said so. There has been a strong and prolonged political campaign to allow the islanders the right to return that has involved many high-profile people, such as the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, This campaign has, however, been dealt a couple of significant blows in recent years, as a constitution and immigration order in 2004 confirmed the prohibition on return. And more relevant to this case, in 2010, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office established a marine protected area around the islands that barred fishing. And this is an important natural resource both for the population and the economy as well. The other party to this case taking on the FCO is Mr. Bankolt, who heads up the Chagos Refugees Group. The primary basis for the challenge is that the actual motivation for establishing the Marine Protected Area was that it would make any future resettlement practically impossible. Interestingly, the evidence for this comes from WikiLeaks, who released records of conversations between US and UK officials on the matter, where the Chagossians were described as Man Fridays and Tarzans and it was argued that a marine reserve would put paid to any attempts at resettlement once and for all. Bangkok's second argument was that the consultation prior to the reserve being created was flawed by not exploring the fishing rights of nearby Mauritius. When the case went before the administrative court, something very interesting happened in that the WikiLeaks cable was taken at face value and the named foreign office official was cross-examined. Ultimately, it would be for Bancholt to argue that the cable was valid and accurate, but still, the government were not very happy about this, and argued that under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations from 1961, as well as the Diplomatic Privileges Act from 1964, the US diplomatic papers should be inviolable. The judge was taken in by this argument, and the changed status of the cable affected Bancolt's case and his cross-examination. In the Court of Appeal, the judges there disagreed and held that the cable should have been admissible, but they went on to say that this would not have actually made any difference to the final decision. With all of this up in the air, the case recently found its way before the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. It was Lord Mance who began by looking at the documents and their use in legal proceedings in accordance with the Vienna Convention that we mentioned earlier. Of course, documents that form part of a diplomatic missions archive are normally inviolable, but this is subject to a couple of exceptions. In the first instance, the document has to actually be a part of the mission archive, and secondly, the document cannot be so widely available to the public that there is no reasonable level of confidentiality remaining in it. Lord Mance noted that both of these exceptions apply in this case. For a start, the cable is no longer part of the Diplomatic Archive because it has been passed from the embassy in London to other parts of the US government, such as the State Department. On the second point, it was clear that the document had also lost its status of inviolability because of its distribution by WikiLeaks, even if that distribution was itself illegal. All of the other justices agreed on the admissibility of the cable, although there were some interesting points added. Regarding the Diplomatic Archive, Lady Hale advocated for a slightly wider concept of control, whereby just because documents leave a sending mission, this should not mean that they automatically lose their status for the purpose of the convention. Communication between an embassy and the government is natural and to be expected, and as long as the transmission of documents is carefully controlled, they should remain inviolable. Meanwhile, on the second point, Lord Sumption considered the way that the documents had been accessed, i.e. by way of an illegal hack of the US government. For him, this actually made very little difference compared to the fact that the document is already in the public domain. In other words, so long as it was not the court itself that was breaching the confidentiality, then that was fine. Moving on, and if the document is admissible, then the next question is whether this fact would have actually made any difference to the final decision of the Administrative Court. This is where the panel of seven justices disagreed, and ended up splitting five to two on the issue. The majority was again led by Lord Mance, and the focus was on whether the admission of the cable could have made a difference. Given that the Administrative Court had already taken a close and careful look at the decision to establish the Marine Reserve, there was no further examination of the diplomatic document that would have led to a different result. There had already been consideration given to the Cable and cross-examination from the relevant officials, and in the end, the final decision of the Marine Protected Area was not theirs, but the Secretary of State's. The minority, formed by Lord Kerr and Lady Hale, disagreed with the test that had been applied by the majority and by the Court of Appeal. For them, the correct question to ask is what might have happened if the cable had been admitted in evidence. Not actually having the document admitted as evidence meant that it did not act as a counter to the evidence submitted by the Foreign Office, and it also severely limited the cross-examination of the civil servants named in the cable. In the end, the decision may have been taken by the Secretary of State but could have been based on a misunderstanding of the true facts and context. Finally, the justices were unanimous in their decision to dismiss Bangkok's appeal in relation to fishing rights in Mauritius. If Mauritius felt that these rights were negatively affected, then it should be up to them to raise an objection, and their failure to do so should not act to completely invalidate the consultation. For my conclusion to this episode, I want to focus on the area of most controversy. The idea that even though the WikiLeaks cable should have been admitted as evidence, it would not have made any difference to the final decision in the case. The reality is that this is always going to be partial guesswork, as we are attempting to look at the case with hindsight. It seems obvious, therefore, that the Supreme Court should attempt to limit, as far as possible, the amount of guesswork involved but instead the majority seem to go in the opposite direction. A number of assumptions are made with either little or no grounding in the facts. These include the idea that a civil servant would not disclose an ulterior motive, and that if they did, then it had no impact on the final decision. While I'm very pleased to see that the courts have such faith in the civil service, there is clearly no basis whatsoever for this, and they don't know the mindset of the people involved. In the end, the majority have started their reasoning from the final decision, and then try to work out if anything could have changed that. On the other hand, the minority begin with a blank slate, and go on to see if anything in the cable might have impacted the final judgement. This is a subtle difference, and it is a while since I practised any academic philosophy, but hopefully you can get a sense of how the distinct starting points can lead the justices in very different directions. Neither approach is perfect as that would involve either remitting all such cases or traveling back in time, but starting with a blank slate at least removes any initial bias. Of course, we should also not get bogged down in the dubious methodology of the court and lose sight of the wider injustice that has been done to the Chagossians. It has now been nearly 50 years since these people were removed from their homeland, and even today the government is doing everything in its power to prevent any sort of repatriation, including using feigned environmental concern as a false cover for its neo-colonialist policy. The judgement is not a good one, but it is a drop in the ocean compared to the years of subjugation these people have endured at the hands of British and American foreign policy. Even today, most Chagossians still live in Crawley, where they first arrived in the UK, and receive precious little help and support from the government. In the end, this is about more than what evidence would and would not make a difference to a court case. It is about a respect for basic human rights, it is about fighting colonialism in the 21st century, and it is about letting a group of people return home. Well thank you very much for tuning in again to the UK Law Weekly podcast and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Again apologies for there not being an episode last week I did explain that I was on holiday in the Netherlands at the time and that was a really nice break for me Um, but I'm back now every week with a new episode so do make sure that you keep subscribed And if you get a chance to leave a rating and a review in iTunes, then that is always very much appreciated. And thank you to everyone who's taken the time to do that. That's everything from me, though, today. Um, If you want to get in touch, you can at me on Twitter. I'm at Marcus Cleaver, and I will speak to you again next week. Bye. Bye.